Welcome to The Good Enough Mother. I'm your host, Sophie, a sociologist, motherhood researcher, and single mother. I share evidence-based advice combined with reflections from my own life, and I want to change the conversation and the culture around motherhood. I support women to reclaim an empowered practice of mothering. If you find value in this content and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a patron of the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash the good enough mother or heading to my website, drsophiebrock.com. I've made the decision to start releasing podcasts fortnightly until I'm able to secure some childcare again after this global pandemic. I know that many of you relate to this in feeling stretched with your capacity at the moment. And I too have had to reassess and reprioritize what I can get done in the now little time that I have to work while mothering my two-year-old. I also want to keep this podcast content as high quality, thoroughly researched and as engaging as ever. I've secured some fabulous guests who I am so excited to talk to and to share these conversations with you. But this all takes a lot of time, doesn't it? So I am hoping that regular listeners will grant me some grace in understanding the slower paced releases for the moment. This week I am talking to Carly Grubb. Carly is a mum of three, she's a former teacher and she lives in outback Queensland, Australia with her husband and kids and she has started what has become a monumental force and community of support through the Beyond Sleep Training Project. I know some of you will already be members, but those who aren't, if you're interested in listening to this episode, you'll be interested in joining this group. It's at almost 100,000 members at the moment, which is just phenomenal. Carly's also a founder of her blog, Grubby Mummy and the Grubby Babies, and of the new charity Little Sparklers, which we talk about in the episode. This conversation with Carly was recorded at the end of February before the COVID-19 pandemic had escalated in Australia. But I think actually our conversation is just as relevant as ever. We talk about the impacts that sleep training culture and the pressures around infant sleep can have on maternal mental health, the intense emotional load that women carry in our families and communities, what value in motherhood means, and much more. Carly does share her own personal story of attending sleep school And just to let you know, it may be quite upsetting to hear, particularly for those of you who carry your own pain and trauma attached to experiences in the postpartum period, particularly around postnatal depression and struggles to do with infant sleep. So please do reach out to me if you feel you're needing some extra support after listening to this and I can link you up with some resources. I do hope you take a lot out of this episode and while listening, if you think of a mum or a mum-to-be who would benefit from hearing this too, please do take a moment to pass it on to her. Take a screenshot of you listening and forward it on to her because I believe the more mums that this type of information and conversation can reach, the better. Carly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I so appreciate it and For those who don't know, you began the Beyond Sleep training group on Facebook and it's approaching the 100,000 member mark. And for those who have listened to the podcast regularly, you'll have heard me refer to this group before. And in that context, I think I just want to start by offering my gratitude and thanks to you, Carly, and your team, because truly, as we've sort of had these discussions before, I think that the work that you do saves so many mums and I feel like I was one of those mums who was saved before getting to the point of 
really going down the road further of exploitation of myself and my baby when we're in a really vulnerable space. So I want to offer my thanks first off. I'm glad it helped. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, I suppose, because it's work that you're doing behind a computer and behind a screen, even though there are these huge numbers of people you're impacting, you're not seeing those everyday impacts and that ripple effect that you're having on people. Um, So I really hope that this episode, we're able to reflect on that a little bit and that this can be another way for the waves to ripple out even further, so to speak. So I wondered to begin with, if you could talk for perhaps people who are listening who don't know what the group is about, if you can give us a little insight into what the group ethos is and how it came to be. Well, thanks for having me. Um, So with the group, I started it back in January 2017. Originally, it was my New Year's resolution. Um, I wanted to write a book. And it was kind of in, in um, I felt like there was a real gap in the market for people being able to imagine their reality without sleep training. So there was lots of, like, there's fantastic books around, Pinky McKay, Meg Nagel, Sarah Bell Smith, who all offered some of these gentler styles. But I just felt like what was missing was this real, some real tales of how people actually did it. And I think there's a lot of power in being able to hear how other people did it because it opens your imagination. So, and it kind of gets you away from that prescriptive approach of this is how you need to mother your child. And just that opportunity to think um, of other possibilities that you'd not previously considered uh, is what I was hoping to be able to bring to the market. I thought it was really niche and I was hoping for about 20 or 50 people to help me out. And it (laughs) had that by the end of the first week, I think. And we had a thousand people by the end of the first month. And yeah, we're, we just, we turned three in January and we're just about to hit a hundred thousand probably next month. So it kind of got a little bit out of control in terms of growth and we clearly hit a need, but what obviously the, the plan to write the book quickly shifted because it really turned out the group was actually what people needed. And that was the space to imagine. And that's the whole idea of the group is that people can come to it as a safe space where sleep training won't be suggested to them ever. People come to us like me where we actually had sleep training in our past and they bring that to the table. Whereas, And then there's other people who never actually sleep trained or maybe dabbled in some techniques but not actually went the whole hog. And they come to us trying to figure out life with their little one and how they can be well in themselves Um, while they're not sleep training and we try to meet them at their point of need so it's not not everyone comes to the group well a lot of people come to the group with their head completely still full of all the sleep training culture that we hear strongly believing that they're broken and their child is broken and that there's no other way that they can possibly be okay unless they go the sleep training path other people come to us where it never felt quite right Um, but they just needed to have the reassurance and solidarity of others around them who also felt that way. And and sometimes we get people who are actually already very confident in their path and they come to help support other people. But, yeah, we don't offer a prescription. People don't have to do it any one way, and that's a strong part of our ethos is that we, we are firm in that we will not allow sleep training to be suggested, but aside from that, we maintain safety for safe sleep standards Um, But we'd like to keep people's imaginations open. You don't have to do it any one way. And I think for me, what stood out about the group was 
a couple of points probably. First, that frequent waking for babies is biologically normal and it's not a sign that something's wrong. And I think that so often, especially as a new mum, I think back to the milestone cards that you get of when baby rolls over and baby's first tooth and there's baby slept through the night. And I remember as a new mum, I was using all the cards and I was thinking, oh, when's gonna, when's the day going to be when I can use that card on her? You know, and she's mm-hmm. two and a half and I haven't used the card yet. <laughs> It'll happen, but well, maybe it won't even. Like, I'm, I, I was about to say I'm 35. I actually think I'm older than that. I'm kind of perpetually 35. Anyway, um, I haven't slept through the night ever, I don't think. Like, I, I definitely wake up for needing to go to the toilet or have a sip of water. So it's kind of the sleeping through the night thing, just it actually drives me a little bonkers because it gets people really down down on themselves and down on their babies waiting for the day. And, you know, like, it, you know, it might be just around the corner. But it might not be. And really, if that's where you're going to focus your energy, you're probably going to be quite disappointed for quite a while. So, yeah, I feel like that's one part of the narrative that we really, it does families a disservice. Um, It's not a healthy mental space to be living in. Mm, And Um, I think that it it really nicely, if that's the word, it reflects the broader paradigm regarding mothering and what I try to call out in terms of the perfect standards of mothering that we are expected to live up to. And it really is setting ourselves up for failure. And in the same way that if we're expecting our children, our babies to sleep through the night, oftentimes we can be setting ourselves up for failure. And what does that mean? You know, why is that a marker of success? And let's actually shift what success means and so I really appreciate the way that the group has been able to do that and I think of one of the strengths of the huge number in the group is you don't just have to be told by a post it's normal you can see by the sheer number of people in the group that it's totally normal absolutely and I think too with the sheer numbers and now that we've been going a while too is that you can see you hear from families who are poking their head out the other side with older children and whatnot and so much of the fear-mongering that exists um, and, and works so well on parents, particularly first time round with their new babies, is that feeling that if something's happening now, if you don't do something about it, it's going to be going on forever. It's purely fear-based. It's not based in any kind of fact. And that's the beauty of the group, I think, as well. You can see all these beautifully developing, securely attached, healthy sleeping children who never had any sleep training done to them to develop their healthy sleep habits for life Mm. um, despite what the narrative told us was so Mm. Um, and I think that's a real power in the group as well. I agree and also what I think is unusual about the group in some ways is the acceptance of safe co-sleeping practices because once you've been in the group for a while you almost come to accept co-sleeping as completely normal and it can be it can be hard to remember that culturally actually it's not in our culture and so it's a really lovely place to be where you are having your instincts as a mother I think also the information that is put in the group being evidence-based and backed by research is also really important because we know from research as well that most families do co-sleep at some point. And so if they're going to be doing that, they need the information on how to do so safely. So I also appreciate how evidence-based and research-based the group is too. And I think that that is actually quite rare in this space of infant sleep. Certainly. And it's something we pride ourselves on that um, we're always looking and learning, um, that's another thing we, I 
it's not a complete science. None of this is a complete science. And there's lots of things still being learned about humans, even though we've been around for millions of years, there's lots of things that are yet to be studied and yet to be known. And I think that's one of the things we do quite well too, is try, we really try to acknowledge where the gaps in research are as well, the things we don't know, because that matters. Um, you, you can't have black and white rules about things when certain, uh, certain things have never actually been studied and that allows people some more space to make informed decisions to know what is actually known on a topic, particularly around things like safe sleep but also just infant sleep in general uh, and maternal wellbeing as well is another space that is still under-researched in many ways. Mm. Um, especially when a lot of the research has been done in this kind of paradigm where this you know requires a baby to be sleep trained for mum to regain her mental well-being that's the popular narrative and that's where a lot of research is focused um, but you know for people like me I, I sleep training made my my mental health issues so much worse and um, I've now recovered twice from postnatal depression because I also had it after my third baby and I can tell you now that the closeness and nurturing of my babies and being able to follow my heart with them actually aided my recovery far more than when I was trying to listen to other people's rules about creating distance between me and my baby for my recovery. Um, and I feel like that's an area that's still needing further research to fully understand how that works for different people. But yeah, when we're talking about those things, we try to acknowledge what we do and don't know and also look at lived experience as well. I think that is such an important message for people to hear because I think that it's actually quite counter to the narrative that we're told, even by some health professionals as well, in terms of you need to be at the service of your baby. And in order for you to be at the service of your baby, you need to be mentally well and healthy. And in order for you to be mentally well and healthy, you need your baby sleeping through the night. So it's almost like what sacrifices are you going to make? And it's a layered nature of almost convincing the mother into making particular decisions surrounding her baby's well-being and it misses so much of the picture and I think it also importantly places emphasis on the mother as value only in terms of her utility to another her baby and so I love that you shared that part of your story because I think it'll resonate with so many and I wonder if we can go back a little bit to your earlier experience with your first baby and, and describe a little bit what that journey was like and how it led you into this space of looking at alternative ways and then eventually creating the group. Yeah, so I started out with my first babe. Um, he was a true little sparkler, hence where our charity name comes from. I always refer to him as my little sparkler, mainly to actually avoid a lot of the other labels people like to give him, like bad baby or naughty baby, not letting mummy get any sleep kind of crap. Uh, meanwhile, he was just this, and still is, like he's just got this amazing personality, full of sparkle, intense extremely intense super bright like potentially gifted kind of level of bright and um he brought that intensity to this world from the moment he was born and if i'm honest he was probably like that in my belly too he was a very active little bubber in there um it, it truly is him at his very core um but i was not prepared for that um i didn't know much about baby sleep i've always loved kids and i'm actually a primary school teacher and I very much look forward to having my baby, uh, but I truly was not prepared for what it would take to mother my own baby, particularly a one who was relentless in his nature. Um, he, was, he followed none of the rules. 
So I kind of was prepared for like a newborn period. You know, lots of people talk about how you're going to be really tired. And, but it felt like I was prepared for the newborn period to end. I felt like it was a sprint. And if I just kept going, it would get better one day, like a switch would flick and it would get easier. And I honestly did not know that babies would keep needing to need me at night at all. I had no concept of that. And I don't know what I thought, but I definitely didn't think that. And so with my frequently waking baby, we couldn't put him down. And I now know that's called the fourth trimester. And I now know that we're carrying mammals. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know anything about baby wearing. And then I started being told lots of things. So it came from many angles, family, friends, child health nurses, that in order for me to be able to put my baby down, I needed to start trying different things like um, routines like feed, play, sleep and uh, putting him down drowsy but awake and, you know, all that sleep training culture kind of stuff. But when I try these things, my baby was a zero to 100 kind of guy and he would hit hysteria and, like, it was just absolute bedlam and my anxiety would rise because it's like, oh, hang on a sec, but they said that they said and my baby did the complete opposite. And then I got really tired because I was trying to follow all the rules. I really wanted him to sleep in his own space because that's all I actually thought he could do. So we had, we had a Moses basket to start with and we had a cot when he outgrew the Moses basket and there was no way I was having him in my bed. I had heard of co-sleeping, not bed sharing, co-sleeping, and it had been demonised. I also, aside from it being unsafe, I had also heard many of the, once he's in there, you'll never get him out kind of fear-mongering. And so I used to get up to this frequently waking baby all night, every night. And because I couldn't get him down, you know, like if I did put him down, then he'd wake up again and then we'd be back at the start of that cycle. I was falling asleep with him constantly in unsafe sleep circumstances. I was co-sleeping. I just didn't know it was co-sleeping because I wasn't in bed. I co-slept on the nursing chair. I co-slept on the recliner. I co-slept all over the place other than my bed. And I, but if you asked me where he slept, I would have said in his cot. Mm. And by the time he got to four months, I was just a shell of myself. I was sure I was doing everything wrong. He was just an outstanding baby, but I couldn't put him down. And I really thought I should be able to. He didn't hand over to other people easily. And we had all these other babies around us. So it's not like I actually didn't have other babies around. I had heaps of other babies around us. They're all so settled <laughs> and so chilled. And so it kind of all fed into this view that there really was something wrong with us. And um, I went to our four-month health check and the child health nurse there told me that he was chronically sleep-deprived and his brain development would be being impacted. And that was it for me. So... While I was tired and exhausted and worried for myself, I actually had never really been concerned for him up until that point. But with that knowledge, that was when we accepted our referral to sleep school or mother-baby unit. Initially, I was going to go to the public one, but that was going to be an over-a-month wait. And I found out I could get into our private one at, well, when I say our, I mean we flew 2,000 kilometres because I live in the bush, flew to the capital city private early parenting unit because it only had a two-week wait and I was affecting his brain development. So, of course, I had to put a rush on it. Anyway, we went and we followed all the rules and we did all the things. It was awful. I'm kind of rushing through this story because I actually really hate telling it. Um, people can find the story on my blog if they really want to. Yeah. Um, the aftermath was even worse. 
Uh, we followed all their rules, responsive settling. Uh, the support was atrocious. We had a one week, I called them after one week because I was such a mess. We were up to two hour battles with him and a time to settle him. But they weren't staffed for my call and all I got told was who was going to be stronger, me or my baby. And then I had my two-week phone call and we were even worse. Uh, but this one was scheduled so the nurse was a little more patient with me but she had no other suggestions for me. And so we kept going and it was five weeks later. We were, I was rocking in a ball in the lounge room my baby screaming in his room and I had to call my husband home so I was a risk to myself and my baby. And that was rock bottom. Yeah. And that was where things had to stop. But things did look up. Uh, I got a phone call from a check-in midwife who had been calling me through my pregnancy and she was the one who kind of first broke through some of the crap for me and actually asked me what I thought he wanted from me. And I said, he just wants me to hold him. He just wants me. He wants me to feed him. And she's the first person who said, just do it. Mm. So I actually, it seems silly now that I needed permission to be able to just do those things, but I honestly didn't think I could. And so it was the first time it really cut through to me that I could just stop the bullshit and do what felt what I actually felt he needed I could actually trust that and I think that's probably the thing that aside from destroying the last remnants of my mental health in that process was to realize just how far I had gone in terms of losing my confidence in myself and ability to trust anything I thought about my own baby to realize that I I needed permission to do, to hold him. Anyway, so that's actually what changed our trajectory. And it, it's a long, it was a long journey and a really lonely one, very isolating. I sought help for us many times, but without sleep training anymore because I couldn't do that anymore. And honestly, there was very little available. I didn't know who to talk to. I learned about safe bed sharing um, through reading. Pinky McKay, Meg Nagel, Sarah Opla Smith, Evolutionary Parenting, all the sites we still love to recommend today. And I thank those women for being voices in the dark for me because I couldn't find that anywhere else. Anyway, I, what I was really missing through the whole process of mothering that first baby was a sense of community mm. and feeling like I belonged and not just an outcast who couldn't do things the way everyone else did. And it was after my second baby that um, it was around when he was about three months old and I was in a uh, forum, uh, like, oh, I can't remember, I won't say the name of it, but it's one of those parenting forums. And uh, the mums in there all started sounding like me. And that was the, when I first really got this urge to start writing and reaching to people to help them see that they could consider an alternative path. I wasn't writing them to tell them how to do things or anything like that. I was just wanting them to have a little more um, perspective on alternatives and not feel trapped into one way of doing it. And it was through there that some people asked me to start blogging my writing so that they could share it outside of the forum. Um, and that's where that came from. But, yeah, honestly, the, the, the group spawned from just such a painful, isolating experience and it was through coming out the other side of it where I had so many realisations where it's 
so much of what I believed to go into that sleep training path was just such complete and utter bullshit because when you come out and you realize that you can do all of these things and your baby will still grow and develop and they will come out the other side independent and shining and you can be okay, you start to really question why we're told this stuff in the first place. And that's where it's all, it all kind of stems from really, a really painful, awful experience. And if I can do anything to change that for future families, then I'll do it. And I guess I just want to say, Carly, thank you for sharing that and your vulnerability. And I think it's really important to recognize the emotional labor. First, the emotional labor that it takes to tell your story and to keep telling your story as you have. Second, the lasting impact of trauma that failures of our system have caused. And to emphasize that, I'm sorry you were failed by our system. That should never have happened. And something important to voice is that not only is our system failing women, but we're failing babies too. If we want to put so much emphasis and priority on babies' development, then let's start having that conversation too. This is failing babies. And it takes courage to say that and it takes courage to share your story through the impact that it had on you and your mental health. And that's what's so hard about being authentic in public spaces, isn't it? Because in what you're doing in speaking out in saving other women and children from this, it is also going to highlight and emphasize others' pain and their own vulnerabilities because it's a path that so many have walked. And the isolation that you experienced, I think there will be many listeners who deeply resonate with that. And the very sharing of your story, even if they're not part of the group yet, the very hearing of your words will be medicine for people. But I don't underestimate the impact that that has on you and other women who are in this space. And so I suppose I just want to extend my gratitude for you being able to do that. And I've mentioned, I think that I was saved by your group. I think that hundreds of thousands of women's and women and babies have been saved by the group because even those who aren't in the group have been impacted because that's the way that community works. Every person who is in there and every person whose perspectives are shifted and knowledge has changed, go on to change other people's lives. And let's not also underestimate the impact that it has on future generations of our babies. Because when I'm a mother, I know what advice I'll be giving my daughter if she chooses to have children, you know? So it's having intergenerational changes and impacts as well. And I know that's big to think about and big to recognize. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's intense. I think that's actually raises a really good point too. And that's the voice of the baby and the voice of the children in all of this. It's often so underestimated. It's quite funny because I feel like the conversation gets pulled in either direction and people have really struggled to be able to hold the, the needs of a mother and a baby side by side without elevating one or the other. Mm-hmm. And just simply recognising the two humans in this relationship, both matter equally and what we do to one affects the other and vice versa. Um, it's a really challenging conversation um, that I do think part of the reason that people find that so hard is because everybody loves babies but sometimes they really struggle with what it means to love a baby 
the actual practice of loving a baby is messy and long and it can be relentless and it's not all roses and it's not all sweetness and smiles and it's that kind of recognition of the humanness of our babies that is actually what's going to set people up into the future for a healthier society around families because once you've acknowledged that you can't really deny it anymore yeah. and it's why people can continue to try and minimize it or deny that humanity yeah. that we have these problems so i feel like it's a it's a really healthy space to keep that conversation going we do get that in the group quite often we'll get push back if um, people feel like it's going one, too far one way or too far the other. And we always try to bring it back to centre. So we get lots of, but what about mum? Like, you know, mum's at her wit's end kind of thing. And it's like, yep, mum's at her wit's end. She still has this human who we're not going to minimise while we help this person who's at her wit's end. We can hold both of them. Yes. And it's that really constantly recentering that is actually very hard work. And my volunteers... Oh my gosh, the moderators and volunteers for anyone in the group, you just have no idea the scale of work that they put in to keep that space ticking over and the amount of emotional labour to be able to keep everything in check, keep bringing back that balance, especially in what can be people's most vulnerable times, mm. um, which when they're vulnerable, you know, it can be, it can get people go one way or the other when they can be very angry. We get a lot of anger and um, people can be downright furious at the situations they find themselves in. And um, we still try to meet them right where they're at. And that's that's hard work. And I want to emphasise that for those who don't know, it is all volunteer-based. This is all a service that is being performed for the community for no exchange of money. And it's something which can be uncomfortable to talk about in spaces like this, because as those who listen regularly know, I critique the gendered nature of care work. And I know that our society functions off the back of women's unpaid labor. And that if women put their hands up and said, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm not doing anything that I'm no longer paid for, including mothering, our whole society would collapse. And those who like to talk about the economy and the economic value and productivity well, none of that would happen if we didn't have mothers performing the work they're doing. And the work that is performed by you and the admin team is of such deep, deep value that I don't think we need to convince anyone of that um, if they've been on the receiving end of it. But it is work that is being performed at a cost. It's being performed at a cost to the women who are giving this service, their time, their space, the emotional energy, time with their children, um, sacrifices within their relationships, sacrifices financially, and every hour that an admin or moderator puts into offering community support and help is an hour that she's not out earning money and contributing to her superannuation. It's an hour that she's not able to give to her children or community in, an, in another sense, you know. So as much as we want to talk about what we gain through the giving of women's unpaid labour and work in our community, we also want, want to recognise what's lost. And that's not to say that the work shouldn't continue being done the way that it is. That could be a different conversation, but it's to just have that acknowledgement there, you know? And so I wondered if you wanted to paint a little picture for actually what does the day-to-day running of the group look like? How does it, how, how does it work for those who are in the group that may have no idea? 
Oh, it's, uh, it's quite complicated, actually, because our admins are all over the world um, and moderators. And so we have, uh, we manage time zones a lot. Um, but basically, the, the, key, the key tasks for our admin team are tending to the pending posts um, and ensuring that people that are going through to the group as promptly as we can get them there and delivering the service that those people need. So um, some, some posts can go straight to the group. But as the group's grown, um, we do really need to be mindful of safety concerns particularly. Uh, and we really try very hard to take an educational point of view on that because families aren't posting to us necessarily asking for safety advice and we're not wanting to deliver it in a way that takes away from what the, the support they're actually seeking. But if there's an opportunity for us to improve safety for that family, we certainly try to. And that's one of our key things we do. With the admin team, if people aren't feeling confident handling a post, they will have a conversation behind the scenes to make sure that they have got appropriate resources for that per that person before they head it to the group. Um, they also monitor threads pretty heavily. Um, if, if they've put a post through to the group, generally that admin will be tracking that thread unless they really think it's um, not going to have any issues, which is quite funny because often it's the ones we think won't have any issues that go pear-shaped quickly. Yeah, and we also, the other side of it is, is not all the posts are suitable for the group. Um, we can see from what person has said that they really wouldn't get the support they need via the group. And we usually direct those people to the inbox or they'll inbox us directly. And the inbox team handle that, making sure that they're being referred on to services or suggested. It's not like, because we're not actually a formal referral kind of situation, but we do try to direct people in, head them in the right direction um, if it's very clear that that person needs some outside support. So the, that's the day-to-day -day kind of work that an admin's doing for us. On top of that, there's all the scheduled posts. Um, we have social media team. We have, we're constantly looking at improving our resources and updating um, any kind of stock responses. The moderators work really hard reading through all of the join requests and trying to link people as they come into the group into relevant resources just to help them find their feet. And, you know, we get spot fires daily that need group think to be able to make sure that we can um, get those people help that they need or uh, like bring things back to centre, like I said. Um, and sometimes our admin's fatigue, so they need to tap in and out and get somebody else to give them a hand because if you can't maintain your gentle in the group, um, it's really time for even our team to step back. Can we try to model that for the group because we do try to keep it a kind space. Uh, and if you, haven't, if you haven't just haven't got it in you in that day or even just you know, in an exchange, then it's time to step away. So that's just a little bit of what goes on for our admin team. But I'm just looking at the stats now and just in the last 28 days, we've dealt with over 416,000 interactions in the group. So that's posts, comments and things. Um, so the, it's, it's a massive amount of engagement we're talking about. And, yeah, we're nearing, we've got just over 90,000 members, but 80,000 of them were active in the last month. So it's not like people come to us, join and then not do anything. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an astoundingly active base and so we, we're managing mass numbers of people. And, and all that brings, um, the other side of it is because we get so many new people a month, it's, you can't assume people are seeing or know um, what we're about or how we operate. And so it's a constant cycle of settling people in 
as we welcome new people and settling new people in. So we rely heavily on our older members to help with that settling process as well. Um, and helping people find the tone in the group is also a challenge. Yes. And I think that it is very interesting looking at the dynamics of that around how women who have perhaps joined at the start of their journey or when they're, they've you know got a two or three month old baby and how they journey through cycles of of sleep and changes and growth and, and your own growth as a mother as well. Um, that's a, <laughs> the whole other dynamic to it, but how women on the other side of that can take on that mentoring role for, for new women coming through. And it is an interesting dynamic because it's something which we probably would have seen more actively happening in real life face-to-face communities. If we weren't living in such isolated pockets of homes and suburbs and of experiences the way that we are set up in the modern world um, and because we're not designed to be alone at home with a baby all day or a baby and a toddler and so right. it, isn't it fascinating the way that in some ways the group has really stepped in to fill that need in an online way gives people like that real vision of what a confident, a different way of vision of what a confident mother can look like. Because, you know, the confident mother you see played out in, in modern society and on TV and in books and those things, generally she's not mothering the way that we mother in the group or like, you know, it's not that we have one way of mothering, but um, the things we value um, aren't necessarily how you've seen beforehand and so being able to hear from confident strong wise women who've been there is hugely empowering and I think that's actually what has a big impact and that's why I think the group has huge value aside from having like you know you can look at one-on-one support for people but there is a lot of value in having a group where such social beings that um yeah I think that timely wisdom and you're more likely to have someone you can relate to in, in the large group. Didn't ever picture it being quite this large a group, but anyway, <laughs> I remember it got to about 5,000. We're like, oh, this is a nice size. We might try to slow this down now. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's something which you have put out there as an individual, and obviously it's grown so much bigger around you. But with that growth must come this epic sense of responsibility. And I think that it's something we need to think about in all online spaces where perhaps there are large followings of people and people who are getting support that the person who started it usually had no idea that it would end up that way. And as it's grown, their levels of responsibility have grown and there's not really much flexibility or options there. You either keep going with it or you shut the whole thing down. It definitely, like I said, it changed the trajectory of my life, that experience with my baby. And then this has changed, like, you know, it's like got it on steroids. yeah, I'm doing things that I never imagined I'd be doing and there is consequences if I stop. And it's like I talk to my husband quite regularly about me making decisions that feel right for me and my family and I'm definitely making some, I've put some more healthy boundaries in, I feel like, this year to try and make that possible for me. But at the end of the day, uh, I've also my husband's, like he's been great for sounding it, being my sounding board on it, I feel like this is deep in my core is something I have to see through because I will be forever proud of myself for at least trying. 
So wherever it ends up, like it's the right thing for me personally to at least try and um, whether we achieve the stars or if we just, you know, it finishes up long before we reach those, uh, I at least tried. So from a personal side of things, I feel like, yes, there's definitely quite a large cost. I'm actually quite a shy person. I can talk the ear off anyone, but I've never liked much attention. Uh, I prefer to be actually quiet. I, I love company, um, but I'm very much someone who's always loved being in the crowd of people, you know, surrounding me, not looking at me. And so I, I actually, this role is not where I ever would have put myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's good and bad that come with it. Certainly something I really enjoy, but yeah, some of it's really hard. Really hard. And Carly, I think too, we'll shift and talk a little bit about the charity because I know that that in terms of trajectory, that's where things are going. But I think you've already reached the stars. You know, you you have in terms of you've made huge changes on people's lives and what more, I mean, I know we want more because we want institutional change, but we want that institutional change in order to impact individual lives. And this is one mechanism through which you are doing that to meet that gap and fill that response. But I want to acknowledge that, that I'm like, oh, you've already reached the stars, Carly. <laughs> but I know it's it, streaming. It is, it's, it is. It's amazing what we've, as a team, what we've been able to do. Um, and I think it just shows where there, there's such strong community desire for change in this area because the funny thing is, is we have so many people who come in so full of doubts, but the strength that you build through living this process is like nothing else. And so it's kind of an undeniably healthy experience to be able to live like this with your children, that anyone who comes to us, it seems to have a profound impact on them. And it's not done through anything prescriptive, which is, I think this is, it's like, you know, everyone's been looking for this secret all along and it's like, humanity, that's the secret. Find your humanity for people around you and your baby and your family and yourself. And there's your ticket and it doesn't have to look any particular way. You know, you can work it into your surroundings because there's so many outside of our space if you're looking in. You know, people can think of every excuse under the sun why this wouldn't work for them. Um, But then they come along and they realise, hang on a sec, there's all these people who are doing this and they they are just, they've got challenges just like me and it's still possible. So um, I feel like that's the power of the groundswell but, yeah, I don't feel like I will be satisfied until I can see more change from the top level down because, like you heard from my story, I'm still deeply scarred from the institutional experience of raising my baby. And those institutions are actually driving this culture forward even even more strength in numbers now than they were in 2014 when I had my experience. There's more of these centres opening up. The advice is louder on social media. Um, You know, more and more parents, yes, they're starting to hear our whispers of alternatives, which, gosh, it just, honestly, my heart just swells every time I see a little whisper somewhere of a gentler alternative. And I'm so glad that the people feel confident doing that now. But it's still a whisper. Mm. And that, to me, is unacceptable. Yes. And it will remain a whisper until we can see some structural change. 
yeah. um, and structural change, you know, that, that's, that's not easy to come by. So one of the, like we've, we've started our charity Little Sparklers with the aim of bringing legitimacy to our cause. We already know we're legitimate, but, you know, if you have a look at our board of directors, we've got an incredible lineup. And these people are passionately in our corner. And it's through the work there where we will build resources that are held in such esteem that professionals and those who work with families are not going to be able to avoid them because they're going to be such quality and meet such a need in the community that that's where they're going to need to go. And when they start using those resources with their families, we're going to see a, a real drop in the feed into these sleep schools and early parenting units or whatever they want to call them because so much of that need will simply not exist anymore. Families will be able to set themselves up in a way that they can actually nurture their children and look after themselves from the very beginning mm. um, so we won't see families reaching such a crisis point. Mm. So that's one of our very big aims for Little Sparklers is to actually bring those resources to the table because right now they don't exist. So unless we create them, we can't really expect professionals who need access to resources to be able to base their um, practice on. We can't really complain, I guess, you know. You've got to be able to do something about it. And so we are. We're, we're doing something about it. Um, and it's, it costs money, though, I can tell you. Even in terms of developing content and having quality writers, and it, the people we've got writing for us, they're highly skilled professionals who their time's worth a fortune. And so we're dealing with that kind of... Um, side of things as well the website is the first primary thing you're trying to set up to yeah. get this off the ground yeah yeah we really need this that's going to be our hub our content hub our contact hub um, we'll be able to ultimately deliver training for our volunteers formalized training so that they're able to have their skills that they're developing recognized on their cvs so that their work that they do for us isn't just some online mummy group it's actually the you know it is a piece of paper validation for the huge blood sweat and tears and skill my gosh the skill that they bring to their roles that's all going to be coming through our website we also have got visions of an app but apps are really expensive so <laughs> we're working on the content side of things at the moment but yeah we've got there's a lot of things we could do there's a real sense of urgency around it but we also I'm you know I'm the person putting the most hours in probably at the moment and I'm still working around three little kids so um, while there's a sense of urgency, we're working with people working full-time paid positions as well, and it's hard. So yeah. time time frames are slower than you would like, but it's moving forward, and that's where I try to focus. If people listening want to go on and support Little Sparklers, how do they do that? Where do they find you? So at the moment, um, we've got our donate platform through the Beyond Sleep Training Project website. So the Little Sparkers website's what we're building at the moment. And once that's up, that will have all our donation situation that we can use there. But at the moment, we have it hosted by the Beyond Sleep Training Project website. So people can find it there. There's a donate button. Um, also on our Facebook page, there's um, options to choose us as the charity of choice when you do those donations as well. So we really do appreciate any, any support we can get because honestly, it's hard to get to the point where you can apply for funding for projects and things like that um, because you've got to get off the ground first. So we have got a fundraising and grants team. We're trying to get our strategy together. Once again, full-time working people doing this on the side. So 
I think people, yeah, if I'm not sure they picture our team as accurately as they should. Most of the team aren't just at home with little kids. And even if they are, holy hell, has anyone actually tried to work around multiple children? Um, and then it would be three quarters of the team have returned to paid employment as well as having their own little ones at home. So we are talking extremely overworked women pouring in a lot of unpaid time to get this going. And yes, I have got a feminist issue with it, uh, but if we are just working within the space that we have available to us at the moment to try and make this change happen. Mm. It is, it is tough. And, and that's something that I think so many in history potentially have, have also encountered because as we mentioned when I was speaking earlier, you know, you're trying to change the system while working inside of the system. And if you're not doing it, who is? No one else is doing it. And so there's such a, a deep need and drive and passion behind this purpose. But the flip side of that is the energy that you expel and put into something has to come from reserve somewhere else. And, and that's a really tricky balance and it's not a balance <laughs> you know yeah that's it it's that's out it. of balance but you try to you, we do you know there are like certainly rewards to working even just in terms of working with the team we've got um but it's kind of like you know um any creatives being paid in exposure versus yeah. cash it's still not the same thing and it's yeah it's a funny space to be when you start asking for money um people really do look at you quite differently to how, how it was when there was no money involved. It's quite an awkward spot for me too because, yeah, like I've come into this fighting hard to um, undo a very predatory industry and so I, the last thing I could ever handle is having anyone mistaken us for another predatory industry. So it's, it's always first and foremost in our mind to maintain an integrity but that doesn't mean stuff comes for free it just it just doesn't it's not how the world works everything comes with a cost even uh, if that cost is a just personal emotional um luggage or baggage that that's still a cost um and i think it's one that needs to be recognized i agree and i think that it also in some way perhaps it's an intensification of the cost that mothers bear in raising the next generation of human beings you know we mothering is work and we don't see it as work because it's not economically remunerated and if it's not paid then the value of it is seen differently than the value that others have attached to them when they're doing the same work that is paid i think one of the things though like is it's as much as it's unpaid work right now, one of the things that we really strive to do is to bring the value of the work to the surface for everybody to see, especially the mothering work, especially that, being able to see the huge value in that nurturing. Uh, and that's something Sparklers is definitely working towards as well. Um, there has been pushes in the past. That there was um, the Professor Julie Smith at um, University of Western Sydney she had written a conversation piece about having breastfeeding added to the GDP. Yeah. Um, that sort of thinking is actually what we really need to be doing to shift the political presence that we have and the, the ability to find value for society in this kind of work around our children. Um, and 
I think that's actually also where like it starts with the individual in that if you can see your own value, it, it builds a level of confidence in you that when it comes to making political decisions down the track, um, even political conversations, they start to change. You're not just a mum, you know, you're not just at home with the baby or those kind of things. You can sell it in a whole other way and it's trying to build the language around that. That's a shift in family dynamics as well where partners recognise the value of the person who's doing the bulk of the nurturing work because right now there's still huge disparity in um, what's seen as work within a family um, and the distribution of labour is unbelievably skewed. And so all of those conversations I feel like comes from building stronger women who know their worth, know their value, and none of that comes at a compromise of their babies. Once again, being able to hold them side by side and um, acknowledge, acknowledge the situation. We're certainly trying to help that as much as in some ways we play into it. We're also trying to work for change while we're stuck in a, in a patriarchal system. Yeah, exactly. And there can be something said in terms of needing to place economic value on something in order for it to be worthy. I don't think that's what we we should have to need to do. But I think that living within this culture, for example, with breastfeeding, mm-hmm. we shouldn't have to say this is valuable because it's got economic value. Of course we shouldn't. Yes. But that is the language that is spoken in terms of value socially and culturally. So we have to start using that language in order to have that recognition be heard and deserved. And I think it's, you know, we put obviously dairy and goat's milk and, you know, that's all counted as part and formula as part of the GDP, but breastfeeding isn't. So as women, I agree with you. It has to start within us first because it is going to be really hard for us to convince other people of our value and worth in the work that we're doing and the way that we're being in the world if we don't see it ourselves and stand confidently in it. So we've got to be able to have space first. And the more we can build that capacity in individuals, the more we're going to see it in the community. Because if the individual doesn't believe in it, the community is certainly not. And it's also, you know, we we try to especially with little sparkles, you've got to be really smart. Like you need to know where you're working. You need to know where It's that whole still meeting people right where they're at. We have to meet community right where it's at, culture right where it's at, society right where it's at. Play the game from there. Work it into the narrative so that it becomes part of the story and then that's where we can see the change because it becomes normal. Yeah. And it's that really like we just, it's trying to be smart about it and the impatience can be killer um, because it is a long game. But already like that's where, you know, you look at the growth of the group and it's like, well, it is slow, but it's fast as well. Like, I'm not sure we could handle much faster. And it's the same with Sparklers. Like, startups has been hard. Um, you know, we're hoping to have the site up by mid-year. But honestly, I'm not sure we could keep up at any other pace. So as it seems slow and painful at times and any time I hear another story of someone having their heart broken at sleep school or whatnot, I get really itchy and I just want it to change now. But at the same time, you've got to... You've got to do it well. You've got to do it thoroughly. It's got to come naturally. It's got to come organically through people really seeing the value in what we're doing. So I feel like that's still where we're at um, in the growth and change stage. Absolutely. But who knows where we'll be in 20 years' time. But all I know is that at least, you know, our little ones have had a very different experience and that's going to have a domino effect, isn't it? Like it's, 
it doesn't have to be, or, uh, you know, I remember talking to Pinky McKay when I was right at the very beginning of things and, you know, she was talking about generations of change and um, it seemed like it would be so many more generations before we could affect change. But it's like, no, you know what, we're already making some good headway this generation. So next generation, it's going to be another solid chunk, I think. We're getting there. It's just so important to have conversations that make people think and it gives possibilities that never may have occurred to people otherwise. That's really important. When we are able to collectivise and find each other in these spaces, it can allow us to cultivate a little more courage as well in having those conversations and the acknowledgement that it for women out there who have been on this journey, who are going through this journey, it does take bravery and it does take a level of vulnerability and potentially also some level of risk in speaking out and having these conversations. And so I appreciate the way of what you yourself have created and what your team have created on a broader scale, the way that you have helped to channel that energy and create that vision and allow women to drown out the voices of judgment and everyone else really and tune into themselves and their babies. I think it's really, it is life-changing. So thank you, Carly. Oh, no worries. And thanks for talking to me. I hope you've resonated with something from today's episode. Please do reach out and connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Sophie Brock or head on over to my website, drsophiebrock.com to check out my blog and other offerings.